1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how holy women, the holy women who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to receive your word, that you would help us to understand it, that you would help clear up any misunderstandings that we have, that we would not only understand it, but that we would rejoice in it. Father, as we receive really some difficult teaching, especially culturally, a culture that our hearts love to cling to, in fact, that as you break down those, those idols that we have, as you break down the sin in our lives, the clinging to cultural values that are not yours, Father, I pray that you would help us to be repentant people, to be soft-hearted, to to realize that you are God and we are not, that you are the authority and ultimately we submit to you and trust you and are thankful for you. And we are thankful for the order and the purpose that you have for our lives, for our marriages, for our families. Father, that we would live that out in a manner that honors you, that we would see the gospel and what you have done in Jesus Christ and ultimately we would exalt in him And that would be showing up in the way that we relate to one another in marriage. And Father, that you would make our marriages really a testimony of your gospel. That our marriages would be marriages that would proclaim, proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you something about the similarity of of what I um, see or do in premarital counseling and then also in marriage counseling. I I, I want you guys to know that whether you are coming to me for premarital counseling, which some, some of you have, or you come to me for marriage counseling, or Jason, there's something similar in both contexts. And the similarity is this. In both contexts, we will explain to you that there's really only one real problem with your marriage. And the only real problem with your marriage is that you have two self-centered people and sinful people living in the same house in the context of a broken world together. That is the only real problem with your marriage. Every other problem springs from that. But we will go a step further than that, and this is the part where people start to have a hard time to accept it, is that we will tell you that that situation is actually not an absence of God's grace to you, but as a picture or evidence of God's grace to you. That God is helping you in that situation die to yourself and become more like Jesus through the difficulty of marriage. 
We tell them that God is using all of this to sanctify you, and he's doing so for his glory and for your good. Every counseling situation will do that. You want to know what's interesting? Whether it's premarital counseling or marriage counseling, in every situation we give the same advice, but what is different is the response to that. What's different is the response to that teaching. When I tell that to couples in premarital counseling, they often get closer together and hold each other more tightly and smile. Isn't he great? Isn't she great? Oh, this is going to be wonderful. We're so excited about God's plan for our lives and marriage. And you're right. Even the suffering that comes will grow together in the Lord. And we're going to be so excited about it. And, and they're so giddy and unrealistic and full of crap. They don't know it. You know, and then you have the people over who are in the midst of marriage counseling, and where are they at? They, they hear that, and they start to sort of move a little further from each other, and they fold their arms, and they, they start to, why, why has God done this to me? <laughs> right? This is tough. Speaking of the sanctifying reality of marriage, Paul Tripp, um, who is an author and Um, speaker on many counseling issues and wrote a book called What Did You Expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. He said this, speaking of the sanctifying reality of marriage, he says this, God's grace purposes to expose and free you from your bondage to you. His grace is meant to bring you to the end of yourself so that you will finally begin to place your identity, your meaning and purpose, and your inner sense of well-being in him. So he places you in a comprehensive relationship with another flawed person. And he places that relationship right in the middle of a very broken world. To add to this, he designed circumstances for you that you would have never designed for yourself. All this is meant to bring you to the end of yourself because that is where true righteousness begins. He wants you to give up. He wants you to abandon your dream. He wants you to face the futility of trying to manipulate the other person into your service. He knows there is no life to be found in these things. What does this practically mean? It means, Tripp goes on to say, the trouble that you face in your marriage is not an evidence of the failure of grace. No, these troubles are grace. They are tools God uses to pry us out of the stultifying confines of the kingdom of self so that we can be free to luxuriate in the big sky glories of the kingdom of God. This means that you and I will never understand our marriages and never be satisfied with them until we understand that marriage is not an end to itself. No, the reality is that marriage has been designed by God to be a means to an end. When you make it the end, bad things happen. But when you begin to understand that it's a means to an end, then you begin to enjoy and see the value in things that you would not have been able to enjoy before. Isn't that truth? When we recognize that the troubles in our lives, the suffering that we undergo, the trials that face us, the difficulties in marriage are God's grace to us to free us from ourselves, to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we rejoice in him and not the things of this world. At that point, we can actually rejoice in the midst of those difficulties. That's why God gives them to us. Because our hearts are, as Calvin says, idol-making factories. 
And what we will do is we will create one idol after another, which we will worship here. And as long as we do that, as long as we pursue that, which typically in our case is relationships, is the way people think about us, is our happiness, is our pleasure, is our success, our enjoyment, the way we get along with another person, as long as we continue, our heart continues to crank out those idols, we continue to worship them, we will never know the freedom of the joy of rejoicing in and worshiping Christ the way that we should. And so God graciously puts suffering and difficulty into our relationships and this world so that we flee from idolatry and to him. So what does that look like then? If that's the role, if if that's what marriage is for, then what does the role of the wife look like? What's the calling of the wife? What does the role and the calling of the husband look like in that context of marriage? Well, I want you to hear this. The first thing is, I'm going to tell you three things for the wives and really two things for the husbands. And so here's the first thing for the wives. Look at verse one of chapter three. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, Peter's expecting these wives to potentially have husbands that are unbelievers. They are continually not obeying is the way it's written here. It's not just they disobey the word on one occasion. Their husband is an unbeliever. He doesn't care about the word of God at all in his life generally. He's generally not following. Now, wives with husbands who are believers, you will have husbands who also disobey God's word at times. Peter expects that as well. But the primary context here is women who are in the hardest possible context. They're being asked to submit. They're being asked to subject themselves to. They're being asked to obey. They're being asked to respect and honor a man who fundamentally disagrees with their whole view of the world. That's a tough situation. And he goes on, he says this, do that so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Here's the interesting thing. Both in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, so I shouldn't say both, huh, because there's three passages. In 1 Peter 3, you are told, wives are told that they are to submit to, be subject to, obey their husbands. In all three of those passages. The wife's responsibility to submit and follow and the husband's responsibility to lead lovingly and sacrificially and in a way that serves her were both messed up. The husband became, decided he was going to be an authority who tried to crush his wife and the wife decided she was going to become someone who tried to usurp her husband's authority. Ladies, you know this happens to you because some of you directly shake your fist at God at times and say, you know, I could lead this family so much better than this man you put in my life. Or perhaps you, you don't really say that. You actually just go ahead and assert leadership in various ways. You don't respect your husband. You don't honor him. You don't really let him lead. And then you might say to me, but Chad, you don't understand. My husband won't lead, so I have to. My husband's not very respectable, so I have to. How can I follow a man who keeps messing everything up? Well, understand the context here for Peter when he's writing is the context of a woman who has a husband who isn't very respectable, who isn't easy to follow because he doesn't obey the word of the Lord. Your husband, first, you need to know this, your husband will never lead if you keep leading. He just won't. And second, your husband is not ultimately the one you need to trust anyway. You need to trust the father, not him. 
Peter's assumption is that your husband may be a poor leader. That's his assumption. And he tells you anyway to submit to him. So you can't use your husband's disobedience as a rock-solid reason why you should try to lead him. You, and, and let me put another caveat on this. You're not called to sort of lead through manipulation either, where you give him the impression that he's really leading when you know you are. I.e., you know, they make these jokes like, the husband is the head, but the wife is the neck, right? So she kind of controls and turns the head. And, you know, you hear these sorts of things. I've, I, I um, have made the joke on behalf of other men, that's not the case in my situation, that, that I know guys who basically say, I know I'm the leader in my household. You know how I know that? Because my wife told me I could be right? I'm not saying, however, I want to say this. I'm not saying, however, that submission is this idea of subservience as if you're your husband's slave and he is free to mistreat you. That is not what I'm saying. You are not your husband's slave. He is not free to mistreat you. You are his life partner. You're his helpmate. Submission is the, dis- is the disposition to honor it's the attitude, the disposition, the, the direction of your life where it's set on honoring and respecting your husband's leadership. It's not always agreement. In fact, agreement would be impossible in this case, wouldn't it? Because if these wives are believers and they have husbands who are not believers, they are often going to disagree, aren't they? And yet they're told to submit. It isn't following either your husband into sin. If he says, I want you to sin in this way, you submit ultimately to God. That's why he says this, be submissive to your own husbands. And the context is you're being submissive to them ultimately in the Lord, under God. He's the authority. So when your husband calls on you to sin, obviously you're not to submit in that. But you are to submit to his leadership even if he's a jerk, even if he's a bad leader. Now, I'm going to deal with the whole thing about abuse and at emotionally and verbally this way. I am never saying that any woman in here should be submitting to a man who is emotionally and physically abusing him. She should be seeking protection from that man, not submitting to him until he gets help. So please don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about the regular run-of-the-mill jerk husband, Right? not the abusive jerk husband. Submission is trusting the Lord enough to lead you through your husband. It's trusting the Lord enough to let the Lord lead you through your husband. It's to look to him and to honor him and to respect him and the authority God has appointed in your life. It's what it's to do. Listen to what Proverbs 31, 10 through 12 says about the godly wife, an excellent wife who can find She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband, I want you to hear this, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Do you hear that? She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She's not seeking to usurp his authority or to complain about him to her friends. She is seeking to do him good, and because she is working to honor and to respect him, he trusts her. It's the kind of trust that when a man sees that godliness in a woman, it develops the kind of trust in him that Peter says may actually even win him over to the Lord. Second, not only is she respectfully submitting to her husband, The godly wife is really adorned with humility and gentleness. She's adorned. She's 
dressed. She's clothed with humility and gentleness. Look what he says in verse 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn or clothe themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Listen, I want you to be clear. A lot of times what I, ha- what I see happen with, especially in the cults, but even in sometimes in very fundamentalist, legalistic Christian circles, is they read verse 3 and 4, and they completely misunderstand the point of it. So they read this, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothing. And they say, see, if you braid your hair or you wear gold jewelry, you're in sin. Right? And they argue that. The problem is, that isn't the point of the text. The point of the text is, your adorning, your clothing, your beauty is not supposed to come from your external, your external adornment. It's supposed to come from your heart. If that were the point of the text, we would have a serious problem because look at it if you take it that literally. Do not let your adorning be external, i.e. the putting on of clothing. You're right. Don't braid your hair, don't wear gold jewelry, and don't put on any clothes, ladies. Right? That is obviously not what the text is saying. The text is saying that your adornments what makes you beautiful is supposed to be inward, not outward. Certainly, we could draw from it the idea that modesty and financial restraint are called for, for sure. Because when a woman is immodest, when a woman doesn't financially restrain herself as to how she dresses herself, how she adorns herself, um, then oftentimes what occurs is all that she wants people to see and all that people are really focused on is the external, right? That's what she is primarily, predominantly concerned with people seeing. That itself is a problem. That is sin. That is not looking for the right kind of adornment or clothing. You ought to be spending, if you ladies want to be beautiful, spend as much time in the word and in prayer and in seeking to trust and respect and honor your husband as you do shopping. Or thinking about how you look. Or putting on makeup. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. In fact, I don't think Peter's encouraging you to look all raggedy and beat down when your husband comes home. Don't get me wrong. Okay? I think what he's saying is that your focus, your preeminent concern is supposed to be your heart. The main point is about inner beauty. In fact, it's really, if if you look at it, it says, this is how the holy women of old used to adorn themselves, like Sarah did. You'd be her daughters. We're Abraham's sons, all of us, in Christ. And he says, don't you know, you're like Sarah's daughters. If you adorn yourself with submission to your husband, if you adorn yourself with the inner person of a quiet and gentle spirit, meek, humble, lowly of heart, as Jesus talks of himself, you are... That is beautiful, is what he's saying. And that's just like Sarah, so you're one of her daughters. In other words, like, you want to know what it means to be beautiful? Go to Sarah's beauty shop. Go there. Learn from her. 
means to follow your husband, to respect him, to call him Lord. Lord here does not mean like we think of king. Lord is like sir, mister. It's just respect is all it is. She's being respectful to him. She respects her husband. She addresses him respectfully to him and about him to other people. Proverbs 31, 30 says this, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. See, what's, what's awesome about scripture is that you can gain wrinkles and beauty at the same time. In fact, I would argue that often, probably the most beautiful, in fact, I would say this is true, the most beautiful women in our culture, whether we recognize it or not, are the godly older women, not the women on the front of Vogue or Cosmopolitan or any of that garbage. The godly older women, because they're adorning themselves with the fear of the Lord. But we're in a culture that's obsessed with the way women look, and you miss out on what really defines a woman as beautiful when you don't understand that what makes a woman beautiful is the inner disposition of humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. Peter's telling these women, be like Jesus. Be the kind of person who desires to see God honored and others, even your husband, honored above yourself. Proverbs 31, 23, speaking of the godly woman wife again, says her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. In other words, when her husband is out hanging out with the guys, he is known there. What does it mean? He's respected. Why? Because she has brought honor to him. He's a man who sits among the men of the land and who is known for a wife who honors her husband. She's that kind of woman. She has such a great hope in God that she works diligently to honor her husband. Now, I want to turn to the third point here. She has an unshakable hope in God. Hear that? She has an unshakable hope in God. That's what verse 5 and 6 get at. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. See where their hope is? Their hope isn't in their husband. Their hope isn't in their marriage. Their hope is in God. So they submit to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. Listen, ladies, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. If you're ever going to respectfully submit well to your husband, you have to have an unshakable hope in God and a corresponding fearlessness. I see this need all the time with women who I speak to are struggling with submission. They always say, but you don't understand, Chad. My husband does stupid things all the time. He's not even a believer. You don't know how hard it is to follow a man who won't lead me the way I should be led. And I explain to them, your problem then is not submission to your husband, but submission to the God who's placed him in authority in your relationship. That's your problem. And this is true. But the authority issue, the lack of submission issue, I think is really the near idol. And I want to make a distinction here for you between near idols and far idols. By near idols, let me give you an example. I like food, right? I've given you guys this example before. A near idol for me is some food that tastes good. I will consume too much of it, commit sin called gluttony because I like it, right? That is a near idol. The far idol, really the deep, that's secondary though. The far idol, really the deeper idol, the bigger problem is I enjoy comfort and pleasure. You understand that? The near one, the one that presents itself right in front of me is 
is sort of this love for food and gluttony. The far one, the deeper, more penetrating issue is pleasure and comfort. If it moves from food, it may move to something else. Oftentimes the world goes out there and encourages you, don't idolize food. You should still idolize pleasure and comfort, so find that an exercise instead. And I'm not saying you shouldn't exercise, don't get me wrong, but worship that. Worship how you look and how it feels when other people say you look good instead of food. Just exchange idols. And if you're anything like me, you're thinking, I like the food better than how people think I look. <laughs> so, so that doesn't help me much. Thank you. But the point is, <laughs> just being honest, the point is, is that there's near idols and fall idols. And I think in the life of the wife, oftentimes, most of the time, the near idol is, is the authority issue. In other words, I, I don't want to be under his authority. I want to assert my own authority. I think oftentimes that's the near idol. And the far idol is really this. I fear God. I fear life. I don't trust God. I think that's the far idol. I think it's the deeper issue. I fear. I don't trust God. She's afraid and she's not hoping in God. She doesn't really believe God has her good in mind. Because if he did, then why would she be going through life with this guy as her leader? So her real problem is that she's decided she'll protect herself. She'll become her own provider, sustainer, and protector because God and this man aren't getting it done for her. So she usually begins to nag, or she becomes passive-aggressive, or um, she just becomes downright unsubmissive. She buys the feminist mantra, the feminist mantra that true woman and true femininity is becoming strong and taking care of yourself. And the feminist mantra is partially correct in that true women, to be truly feminine, is to be strong, is to be dignified. However, feminists are dead wrong as to the, as to the derivation, the, where, where this strength comes from, the root of this strength. Real feminine strength and dignity comes from hope in God, not from confidence within yourself. Most people's problem is not that they need to be more self confident. Most of their problem is that they are too focused on self already. What they need is hope in God, trust in God, looking to God. It's a deep belief that God promises to be a good father and to care for her that provides strength to the godly woman. The feminists are also dead wrong as to the direction, not just the derivation of the root, but the direction of the exercise of feminine strength. Women are strong. They're dignified. They're gifts and blessings from God to us men. But there is a root for that strength in their lives, which is trust and hope in God. And there is a direction for that strength in their lives. And the direction for that strength in their lives is not toward exalting self. It's not toward being independent and asserting their dominance and authority. Listen to what Proverbs 31.25 says. Strength is... And dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. What does that mean? She laughs at the time to come. The direction of her strength moves toward submission. Not away from submission, but toward submission. Why? Because she, precisely because she doesn't fear anything frightening. She laughs at the time to come. I know, that's what she's saying. The godly woman is strong and dignified. Why? Her hope is in God. She's laughing at the time to come. She knows troubles are on the horizon and she can actually laugh at them because she knows who her God is. And so she can move toward submission rather than run away from it. 
Abraham often bailed on Sarah for his own self-interest. Go read Genesis. Abraham, the father of our faith, was a complete jerk. On more than one occasion, he told his wife, we're coming to this land, this king is going to find you beautiful. If he finds out you're, you're my wife, he's going to kill me to get you. So tell him you're my sister, which is half true. But he's also, she's also his wife. And she's like, okay, Abraham. And she's going to submit herself to potentially being raped by this king. Now, I'm not telling you women that you should give in to that sort of sinful request on the part of your husband. But the point is, Abraham was a bad husband in those cases. And Sarah, Sarah relied on the Lord. And you know what the Lord did? The Lord gave her strength to the situation and the Lord delivered her. The Lord delivered her. It was because she understood who placed her in this marriage and who had her good in mind and who was her protector and who was her sustainer and who was her provider that she could respect and honor her husband by calling him Lord. Thus, respectfully submitting to him. Oh, that God would give us women who trust deeply in him and are described as Proverbs 31, 26 through 28 describes the godly woman. She opens her mouth with wisdom. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Our church needs these kind of women. We need women who love Christ, who trust in God and do not fear, who honor their husbands and seek to do them good their whole lives. Women who are wise and godly and hardworking. Women who are sages. What that means? They provide wisdom to the rest of the body. Young women, single young women who rejoice in the Lord and serve the body. Young married women who attend well to their husbands and their children. Older women who teach the younger women how to live godly in Christ Jesus. But what about husbands? Because Peter seems to spend six verses on wives and then one verse on husbands. And I had some people over last night, and they asked me, why is that? And I said, that's because women are six times more sinful than men. That, that really isn't the truth, right? That isn't why he did that. I hope you weren't taking me literally. But the reason is, is because women had a particularly difficult situation here. They're submitting themselves to the authority of men who are unbelievers. Now he's addressing men who are believers with believing wives. And so his instructions shorter, clear, but just as powerful. What does the role of the husband look like? Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Why does he have likewise in in, in verse 7? If you look back to chapter 2, he tells the the people to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human um, institution, in other words, to their government. And then in in verse 18 of chapter 2, he tells the servants, be subject to your masters, and there's a likewise there. Then you go to chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, and then likewise, husbands, live with your wives. Why the likewise? Because in every other case, the likewise is pointing to the fact that you're supposed to submit to some authority over you. But in this case, it isn't about a submitting to the authority of your wife. It's not about, you know, husbands are supposed to submit to the leadership of their wives, just like wives are supposed to submit to the leadership of their husbands. That isn't the point. But we do submit, guys. Men, we are called to submit. We are called to submit to the needs of our wives. 
We subordinate our own little world and our own little agenda to meet the needs of the woman who is our wife. And I mean real needs. Not we're called to submit to the idols in our wives' lives and serve their, her idols for her, but her needs, which means you have to be a godly and wise shepherd to understand what those are and to submit your whole agenda in life to serve her needs. Thus, Peter begins an understanding of our leadership by beginning with this point. Our leadership, our leadership, men, is about subordinating our needs for the needs of our wives. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, to lay down our lives for the sake of our wives. This is how you demonstrate leadership in a gospel paradigm. How you demonstrate leadership. You demonstrate it by leading your wife as Christ led the church, giving up his very life for her. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Our leadership is found in serving our wives and in leading them for their good, not our own good. Our leadership is not found in dominating them for our own comforts and needs but in serving them by looking out for their good. I, I want to say this. Men, just like women, just like your wife um, is not called to make you lead, right? She's to let you lead, to, to submit to your leadership. She's not called to make you lead. You are not called to make your wives submit. This isn't a passage where you get it out and beat her over the head every time she doesn't do what you want. You're supposed to submit, woman. Look, if you do that, you're just demonstrating. You're just a big jerk. You have real serious problems yourself. That's different from, and I want to make this caveat, it's different from, you know what? I'm, I'm a husband who sees that my wife is having a sin in this area, sinning in this area, and I'm not caring so much that it's offending me that she's not submitting, but I'm caring about her reconciliation with God. And so I'm going to go and lovingly talk to her about lack of submission because I'm concerned about reconciling her God. Once you do that, your wife will know that you're there for the right motive and not there to manipulate her into doing what you want. And wives, the opposite is true too. I see that my husband isn't leading the way I want or the way he should biblically. And so I'm going to actually wait for the time when I'm not seeking an opportunity to go tell him so I can get him to lead me in the way I want but I'm going to wait for the opportunity until at which time I am predominantly concerned about him being reconciled to the Lord, and then I'll go to him and talk to him about his lack of biblical leadership. You understand the distinction there? Because oftentimes what we do is we come and we say, you need to submit. Why? Because I care about your relationship with Jesus? No, because I care about getting my needs served. You need to lead well. Why? Because I care about your relationship with Jesus? No, because I care about getting my needs served. And our spouses know when we're coming to them for the wrong reasons, don't they? So we men don't, or don't have the responsibility to make your wife submit. You have the responsibility to lead her lovingly and to serve her and to pray for her and, yes, confront her in sins for her reconciliation to Christ. But you don't have the responsibility to run around the house saying, submit, submit, submit. Our leadership is found in serving our wives and leading them for their good, not our own. Yes, you have authority, but you're always to exercise your authority for her good, not for yours. I want to quickly mention two things Peter says about our leadership. Look what he goes on to say. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, 
as the weaker vessel, really the as the weaker vessel should be attached there to live with your wives in an understanding way and not showing honor to the woman. It's just a grammatical point. But live with your wives in an understanding way as the weaker vessel. In other words, what he's saying is we're to live with their wives as those who have a deep experiential and intimate knowledge of who they are. Not just I can identify her on a stats sheet, but I really know her. And when I live with her in an understanding way as a weaker vessel, because I really know her intimately and experientially, men, I know how to shepherd her. I understand she's a weaker vessel. I understand that, so I'm supposed to continually pursue intimately knowing and caring for and protecting and supporting her. And the word weaker, by the way, is a comparative word. It's not, you're big and strong and she's a little weak person. It's, she's weaker, which means you're also weak. You both need God. God has put her in your life for you to care for her, to shepherd her. We need to understand that our wives are weaker vessels who need us to be caring enough and sensitive enough and loving enough and man enough to pursue intimately understanding them so we lead them rightly. If you want your marriage to improve, then you work on you, right? By turning to God. Leadership, men, is saying, you know what, to your wife? How can I improve as a husband? Hardest thing to ever say, I never want to personally ask that question. So I seldom do. (laughs) Because I don't want to. How can I improve? How can I help you more? Leadership isn't saying, you know what, woman, you need to learn to submit. Means I'm going to learn about my wife. Your wife and my wife are different. So they have to be led differently. You need to understand your wife. That's your job. You need to lead her in a manner that's best suited for her. You don't need to um, go around wishing that you could shepherd your wife the way your friends shepherd their wives. Because you're not married to their wives. You're married to your wife. You need to understand her and adjust your life accordingly so that you shepherd her rightly. Second, you're to show her honor since she is the co-heir of the grace of life with you. Look what he says there. Showing honor to the woman since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now think of what that statement means in a first century context. In a first century context, men could abandon their wives. They could treat their wives like animals. In fact, in a first century context, there wasn't a large distinction in value between a woman and a dog. Not, I'm not you know, exaggerating here. Women were treated very poorly in the first century and thought very low, people thought very low of them. They weren't allowed to be served as witnesses in court because they weren't considered trustworthy in the first century. Women in the first century, actually, there were prayers of rabbis who would actually pray every day, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman. No lie. That's why it's so radical what the Bible does with women where Jesus makes women the first witnesses of his resurrection. It's radical. Where Jesus comes along and says, these are co-heirs. Peter here is saying as an apostle of Christ, these women are co-heirs of the grace of life with you. You understand the radical paradigm shift? Women weren't allowed to inherit anything in the first century. They were not allowed to be inheritors of anything in the first century. And here Peter says, your co-heirs You are co-heirs. These ladies are your co-heirs. And you're to honor them as such. In other words, this woman is not just your wife. This woman is your sister in Christ. This woman is God's daughter. 
and you're to honor her as God's daughter. In fact, the word honor there is the same word that's picked up in chapter two of 1 Peter where it talks about Jesus being the precious cornerstone. She's precious. You're to treat her as precious. You're to honor her because she's God's daughter. This is an honor that you give her if you deem that she's earned it. This is honor you give her because she is God's daughter. Just as wives are to show respectful submission to their husbands, whether their husbands have earned it or not, so husbands are to honor their wives, treat them as precious, whether their wives have earned it or not. Men, if you ever, and I want to be very clear about this, if you ever beat down your wife verbally or physically, rising up against her physically, or treat her anything less than God would have us treat one of his glorious daughters, then you are a fool. You are a stupid man who is mistreating a glorious gift from God. And I would desire to beat you down for the glory of God because you are a fool if you touch a woman that way. She's a gift from God. You're to treat her as precious. She is God's daughter, a co-heir of the grace of life with you. She is not your slave. God, forgive us for every time we've misused our God-given authority and crushed these beautiful women God has given us. If you do mistreat your wife, if you don't lovingly lead her, showing her honor, what does Peter say to you? So that you treat her this way, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, if you don't love her rightly, if you don't show her honor, then your prayers will be hindered. Hear that? Three times Peter talks about the hindering of your prayers. And every time he says, when you are living in unrepentant godlessness, in some way you are in sin and you are not repentant of it, in this case, the way you mistreat your wife, your prayers are not going to be listened to by God. I think we often think that our prayer lives help us live a more godly life, right? What I need to do is pray more so my life is more godly. And what we don't consider is that having more godly lives actually makes our prayer lives more effective. So what if you failed to be the submissive wife or what if you failed to be the self-sacrificing leader? What if you failed in those regards? If you're like me, a human, you failed. That's why we have the gospel. That's why we have the gospel. I I want you to hear this. Jesus, Jesus was the perfect, is, was and is the perfect self-sacrificing husband to his bride, the church, that we as men have failed to be. He is that, and that is credited to our account in spite of our failures and our sin. And if we turn and look to him, God credits us to our account and forgives us for our sin against our wives. And it empowers us to live godly then toward them. Jesus is the perfect husband that we failed to be. Wives, if you have failed to trust God and submit in the way you should, you need to know Jesus perfectly submitted to his father in every situation always. And you have, may have failed to submit to the authorities God has placed in your life and thus ultimately failed to submit to him, but Jesus didn't fail. And if you look to him and trust in him, then his submission is credited to your account and you are forgiven. Jesus suffered perfectly in our place. Some of us fail to suffer in the context of our marriage. Well, Jesus suffered perfectly in broken relationships with people in our place. He was mistreated by them and he loved them perfectly in the midst of it. 
The point is, is that in every case, in every case, we have failed. In every case, we are called to do better. In every case, Jesus has done it for us. And if we trust in him, we are forgiven because he paid the penalty for us on the cross for our failure, our sin, and we're credited with his righteousness for his perfect, flawless, sinless performance of the call given to us. And when we understand that and we turn to him for forgiveness of sins and we turn to him for cleansing from unrighteousness and we turn to him so that we can be credited as righteous for what he's done, then at that point we have the freedom when we see that and meditate on it again and again to get up and try again to pursue godliness again, knowing that ultimately our standing is with him and not with ourselves. Let me pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word and its truth. We are thankful for the fact that Jesus never failed to lead his bride the way he's supposed to. That he never failed to submit to you. That he never sinned with regard to broken relationships he had and loving people rightly in the midst of them. Father, that he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin and that his perfect life is credited to our account, that his payment for our sin is what it is, payment for our sin, and that we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness if we look to him. We pray, Father, that you would help us to look to him, that you would help us to see him, to trust in him, to follow after him. Father, as a result of all that, as seeing and trusting and knowing our salvation is with him, that we would be people who fulfill the roles that you have given us, that we would pursue godliness in them, that we would trust in you and submit well to authorities in our lives. Father, that we would lead well in the relationships that you've given us to lead well. Father, the men in here would see their believing wives as what they are, co-heirs of the grace of life with you. And, and Father, that we would treat them as your daughters. We would honor them and hold them as precious and be thankful for them. And Father, we pray for the women in here that they would desire to be godly women, that their lives would be turned to you, that they would develop that inner disposition that makes them beautiful as women who trust in God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.